Hey, it's Jonathan. I wanted to give you a heads up that this episode contains conversations on the topics of sexual assault and domestic violence. These are very serious issues, and if you or someone you know has experienced them, Crisis Text Line is a great resource. You can visit crisistextline.org to learn how to text, chat, or WhatsApp with a volunteer crisis counselor 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Hey there, welcome to the Linecast. I am your host, Jonathan Platt. Before I get into the conversation that I had with Dan Solomon, a writer for Texas Monthly, uh, I want to tell you about something really exciting happening for the first time in the Baylor family. Uh, it's our Baylor Line Festival happening December 7th through 9th. This is a conference that's designed to bring together important thinkers and big ideas uh, for the Baylor family. Some of them are from the Baylor family, uh, but it's not just for us. It's for everybody. It's three action-packed days with 15 sessions. I think we're at like 22 speakers. And on top of all of it, there's going to be some of Waco's best tacos, barbecue, and I've got some extra special little magic baked in. This is our inaugural program, and it includes keynotes, panels, featured speakers with leading authors, politicians, journals, and prominent industry leaders across three big days. Before, during, and after, you'll find high-energy events and opportunities for networking and socializing. I'm personally excited about Friday's Line Feast. All the proceeds from LineFest are going to support Baylor Line's independent newsroom. And just a few of the people joining me on stage are Robert Darden, co-author of Soon and Very Soon, and a retired professor of journalism, public relations, and new media at Baylor. Gene Bishop, the author of Grace from the Rubble and A Change of Heart. Dr. Alicia Kaufman, an associate professor of history. Craig Cunningham, author of One Night in a Thousand Years, and also the past editor of Baylor Line. Andrea Barfield, the Wago City Counselor from District 1. Patrick Svitek, the political correspondent for Texas Tribune, Joanne Cummings, director of Baylor's Middle East Studies program and a past guest of this show, Mark Wingfield, the publisher and executive producer of Baptist News Global, Paula Solis, my first ever editor, that's right, first editor at the Lariat, she's now the newsletter editor at Houston Landing, and capping all this off is our featured speaker, Francine McKenna. She's a lecturer at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and also an award-winning writer and teacher who migrated to investigative journalism after a career in the public accounting industry. She's a past Baylor guest lecturer and author of The Dig on Substack. I really hope you'll consider joining us because all of this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the fun and the magic and the big ideas that we're bringing to you December 7th through 9th. To find out more, to get your tickets, BaylorLine.com slash festival. That's BaylorLine.com slash festival. Now, let's get on to why you're actually here, my conversation with Dan Solomon. Nine years ago, Dolores Lozano claims she was violently assaulted by a Baylor football player and her boyfriend at the time. In 2016, she filed a lawsuit against Baylor, claiming that despite having gone to administrators and football program leaders, her alma mater had been negligent in its handling of her reports of domestic violence and, as a result, had violated her rights under the Title IX federal civil rights law. On Tuesday of this week, a Waco jury found Baylor liable. It's the only Title IX case to go to jury and reach this verdict, and it involved the testimonies of former Baylor head coach Art Bryles and former Baylor athletic director Ian McCall. The decision comes just weeks after Baylor settled the largest 
case of the scandal, a 2016 federal lawsuit brought by 15 women who alleged they were sexually assaulted. And now that this trial is wrapped up, I wanted to talk to the reporter who'd been covering the beat since 2015. Dan Solomon is a senior editor at Texas Monthly, where he's covered topics from Baylor's sexual assault scandal to the gentrification of Austin's barbecue to the legacy of Texas outside artist Daniel Johnson. His reporting has appeared in the New York Times, GQ, Vanity Fair, Wired, Fast Company, Billboard, and Deadspin. In the show notes, you'll find links to four of the stories Dan has filed on the Baylor sexual assault scandal. Here's my interview with Dan Solomon. Hey, Dan, so let's jump right into it. So yesterday in Texas Monthly, you published an article titled, A Jury Found Baylor Liable for Failing to Prevent Violence Against a Student. Um, It's been generally about 10 years since sexual assault and Baylor became such uh, uh, two connotative terms with each other. Um, Can you kind of catch us up on what has happened recently and then let's also kind of have a broader conversation about what's led to this and why it's taken so long for these uh uh, men to be held accountable yeah so what happened recently was that uh on tuesday of this week um the the only one of the title nine lawsuits brought against baylor stemming from the sexual assault scandal that really stretches from around 2000 13, maybe a little bit earlier with Tevin Elliott through um, today, ultimately through, you know, kind of forever. Um, the the only one that actually went to trial was uh, the the case of Dolores Lozano, who uh, is now an elected justice of the peace in Houston, uh, but in 2014 was a Baylor student who reported to uh, several university officials, including in the football program in, uh, you know, in judicial affairs and, uh, and and in student counseling that uh that she had been assaulted by her boyfriend who was a football player at the time and uh she sued for uh arguing that Baylor hadn't met its responsibilities to keep her safe and it hadn't met its responsibilities to uh provide the services that it's required to provide under those circumstances um there'd been many lawsuits filed around similar things uh, many of them, 15 of them got wrapped into a class action suit that settled last month in, in September. Um, and th- we don't know what happened in those. We don't know what the terms of that settlement were. You know, the, uh, the the plaintiffs in those suits are all under NDAs, so we won't really know what happened there. Um, so Dolores's suit was the only one that we have any details from. It's the only one where we have, you know, testimony under oath from a lot of the the people who are relevant to this story um has so it Lozano, was has, has Lozano spoken about why she felt convicted to carry out a separate case she wanted to go to trial is is my understanding of it yeah. uh, she like this was you know this wasn't about money i suspect that the that that the uh amount that she was awarded by the jury my my hunch and this is just a hunch i have no inside information on this is that you know it's probably pretty similar to what the the settlement amounts were just kind of as a as a guess settling 15 cases at 200,000 would be about 4 million bucks and that seems like if baylor was able to get out of it at that price they probably would have been pleased to do that 
So my hunch is that it's probably in that ballpark. Um, but she wanted to take it to trial. You know, I, I, this is, as far as I'm aware, um, I think as far as anyone is aware, this is the first Title IX case to, of, of at any at any university to go to jury trial and and end in a finding of liability um, like this. Uh, so the first Title IX case for for uh, sexual assault or or domestic violence or sexual harassment. Um, so yeah, that's the that that's uh, it's pretty significant in that regard. Yeah. Why, why do you think that it's taken so long for this saga to kind of reach a conclusion, you know, with the, 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 the settlement agreement a, a month ago and now this uh, decision, I, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a long time even for big court cases like this. Why did it take so long? I mean, courts take a long time often. Um, you know, there were a lot of like, I don't think that Baylor was, eager to uh to wrap this up quickly you know i think that um you know they they and, and they wanted to win too like baylor didn't get into this you know didn't get into court and and uh you know try and and argue that like oh well you know it's very sad what happened to her but you know it it ultimately the responsibility isn't ours they got in there and really wanted to argue that that they didn't do anything wrong that even her her ex-boyfriend didn't do anything wrong that she was in fact the the uh the person who was at fault in this situation so i think that uh you know it just it just takes a long time when you've got parties that are really stringently opposed to each other yeah were you able to be in the courtroom for any of this yeah i was in the courtroom for about half of the trial maybe a little bit more okay were you so, were you yeah. there for uh I I had I had not seen a picture of one of the key players in this whole incident um in a long time and uh another story you filed uh it went it, did it run yeah end of last week um I did not recognize Art Briles in this photo I I truly what was that like? were you there for the Art Briles testimony and if what? so what was that like to see I mean he he it just looks different yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, it's it's been a while since Art Riles was in the public eye. Um he, you know, his last real job was he was coaching uh in Mount Vernon, Texas, northeast uh Texas. And so I, I covered that. I was up there um the only time I'd ever been in the same space as him was at a at a football practice in Mount Vernon. Uh, yeah in 2019, I think. Um that was the only time I'd ever uh, you know, I I've known who he is for a very long time and have covered him for a very long time, but I hadn't ever been around him before that. And then the second time was last week in, in court, um, you know, and uh, yeah, he, he testified, he gave some surprising testimony. He, uh, he was asked about uh, his, the book that he wrote beating Goliath written by uh, Art Bryles with, uh, with a, a co-author um, and said that it, not only did he not write it, he didn't understand it as a, Book as a memoir, as a book that that was written in his voice, he described it as a book written about him, yeah. which was surprising because there actually was a book written about him that came out at the same time. Um, and so when the attorneys clarified, like, you don't mean the other book, that's a different book. We're talking about this one and held up a copy of it for him. He said, yep, I don't know anything about that book. I've never read it, never seen a copy of it, never, you know, never had anything to do with it. Couldn't tell you what's in it. And, you know, when he was asked, you know, if he remembered holding a book signing at the Baylor bookstore uh, that 
you know, when the book came out in 2014, he, you know, kind of like, well, I guess I, if you say I did, I did, or, or something to that effect. Um, yeah. But really downplayed his connection to that book, which was really very strange because, yeah. you know, <laughs> the, uh, it, it has his name on it. He signed copies of it. It, you know, he, by the account of his co-author, you know, there's a signed contract by him uh, where his agent was paid for it. He said that he never signed any paperwork, didn't authorize it. It was, it was really strange. Um, and, you know, he did a couple of other, had a couple of other moments that were also pretty unusual, kind of, kind of like that. He, uh, you know, when he was asked about suing Baylor and, and certain members of the board of regents, he claimed that he hadn't sued them. And, you know, when he was prompted that there was in fact a lawsuit filed under his name, he acknowledged, well, his lawyer may have done that. Um, so just some unusual stuff in that testimony. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was, was there, was there anything unusual about his, 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 presentation was there anything unusual about how he acted compared to when you were with him in 2019 or when you may have seen him on the screen i mean he was very professional very well put together at baylor i I mean i remember uh covering a couple of press conferences for uh some uh, some friends that worked on the sports desk they just needed me to go tape you know uh, a, a conference with with bryles and very very scripted put together and reading your uh, reporting on him it it just doesn't sound like that described him on the stand well i mean he's still very charming you know yeah. he's still very folksy he you know he got a laugh out of the jury at one point when he mm-hmm. you know talked about taking the job at the university of houston he was like i got it cuz nobody else wanted it and you know it was a it's a good line like he's you know he's he's a he's a, a charming person um yeah. You know, but he really wanted to argue some specifics that uh, that I didn't understand why he was arguing. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I I don't know, you know, I don't know where they were going with the book. I've read I've read the book. Apparently he hasn't, um, you know, but uh, but, you know, I, I assume they wanted to ask him about some of the specific things that are in that book that are, you know, again, all written in the first person. The narrator of the book is is Art Bryles uh, as as I um, in that book. So, you know, they probably wanted to ask him some questions about that stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know what his what actually, you know, how much of that book he participated in or if it was just he sat down for, you know, a couple of long interviews with uh with the co-author who then crafted the the material about it i i don't know what the process was like but um i imagine he didn't want to uh be questioned about some of the things that appear in that book i don't know what the questions would have been but sure you know that's sure. the the co-author is don yeager uh and you reached out to him uh and asked for a comment and he said nothing about the way that you dan reflected uh it the as in Browse's description of the book the book could be further from the truth i just reviewed the book contract with saint martin's which was signed by art and his agent received art's portion of the advance because that was another thing was he kind of like argued over whether or not he got paid for the book or not or it went to charity or so it, it was there was there any more conversation that you had with jaeger about the the book writing process or was it just that transactional email of like no this is not how it uh we traded a couple of very brief emails about it um you know he he assumes you know and reasonably that bryles must have been confused about which book it was actually in in reference to and you know but but he confirmed that uh you know that there was in fact a signed contract uh and that bryles was paid through his agent for the book so yeah i maybe he just forgot i don't i don't know sure you know i i 
can't speculate on, on where Browse was coming from with that testimony, but it was surprising because, you know, there isn't really a, a question about who wrote the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember I remember the book signing. I, I was on campus, you know, when it happened. I had friends that went to it. Um, so in addition to Bryles uh, in this lawsuit, the, 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 another person involved was Ian McCall. Were you there for Ian McCall's testimony? I was, yeah. It was the same day. It was earlier that day. Okay. How, how did that go? Was it as surprising? It wasn't as surprising. There weren't like questions of fact in the same way that there were with, with Bryles where, Mm -hmm. you know, everything that, that McCaw said, like it was his perspective on things. It was his recollection of things, but it didn't, it didn't contradict the record uh, about things that are pretty cut and dry the way that Bryles did. Um, It was, it was a little more normal, I would say, um, you know, he, and, and ultimately, you know, at the time that they were both testifying, they were both named parties to the lawsuit. So they were both, they both stood to lose money uh, in this case. And then the day after they testified, the judge dismissed them from the case, finding that there, in Dolores's case, there wasn't uh, enough evidence to find them personally responsible for what happened to her. Uh, so the most important part of their testimony ended up being testimony that they provided about the amount of training that they had received from Baylor because Baylor was still a party to the case. Yeah. And both of them said that they did not receive training from, from Baylor on title nine or on, you know, uh, how to handle these situations until well after, until after Dolores's uh, incident happened in early 2014. Yeah. Did we, did we learn anything from this case that we didn't already know about how Baylor handled uh, specific, obviously, specifically this instant, but of how Baylor handled sexual assault claims in general. So, only kind of in in details. Okay. Um, we knew that there were some. There was a, a, a system of uh, of trying to keep certain athletes who had gotten in trouble uh, out of out of the hands of judicial affairs. We learned a little bit about the detail of that. There was a you know, kind of a widely publicized text message where Bryles had had sent to, um, I believe, one of the assistant coaches, but I'm not positive who it was, mm-hmm. uh, but that he had sent, you know, saying that he was trying to keep a player who had gotten in trouble um, away from the judicial affairs folks. That was uh, that was about a player who was, a, a, I think he was a redshirt freshman at the time, um, who was caught with a, a beer can, uh, according to Bryles, it was a minor in possession thing. And he just felt bad for the kid and didn't want him to get kicked out of student housing for being caught with beer. Um, you know, and that it was one of those things where like, I'm sympathetic to a, a to a kid in that situation too. Um, but then as I thought about it, like if Bryles wanted to, you know, he had options, he didn't have to try and keep judicial affairs from knowing about this um he could have written a letter on the kid's behalf to judicial affairs he could have pled his case in front of the judicial affairs department instead he wanted to keep the punishment for it in-house so that's you know we knew that that sort of thing happened but we didn't know the details of it um we knew that they liked to punish players within the program rather than uh, maybe in addition to or or maybe instead of uh judicial affairs or or criminal punishment um didn't know exactly what that looked like. I didn't know anyway what that looked like until this trial. And uh, we learned about pushing plates, which is a practice they would do where, uh, you know, you would, the the player who was, uh, who was in trouble maybe for, for alcohol or, or for domestic violence or for, for something more serious uh, 
would be told he had to push, they'd have to push 45 pound uh, weightlifting plates across the, the practice field. Um, or, you know, in, in Chafin's case, uh, Wes Yuri, who was the athletics chaplain at the time, uh, walked into the the training room at one point and saw uh, Chafin, he said, uh, holding 45 pound plates in his hands while he was walking up the Stairmaster. And and uh, according to Yuri, he believed that was uh, punishment for what happened with Dolores. Okay. This, this is, um, these two articles are not your first uh, reporting on Baylor uh, as uh, it goes, especially with Texas monthly, you, you uh, wrote an article with Jessica Luther back in 2015 called silence at Baylor. Uh, could you kind of briefly walk us through what brought you to covering that specific uh, story and then more broadly, what kind of kept you involved in covering this uh, for what would turn out to be the next, you know, eight years? Yeah. Um, so Jessica and I are, are friends and, and frequent collaborators. We'd worked together on a couple of other stories before that. And we talk about what we're, you know, what we're working on. And we had learned that uh, we, we had heard anyway, we didn't even know that this was true, but in, in August, early August of 2015, we had heard that a Baylor football player named Sam Guachu was about to stand trial for sexual assault and that the story hadn't been reported anywhere. Um, that surprised us because that's the sort of thing that tends to make headlines uh, so we we looked into it um, and eventually got a, it was hard to find any information about it. Uh, not only had it not made the Waco Trib or, you know, the, the student papers or, you know, Baylor football was a big deal at the time. This was, you know, kind of the height of, of the Bryles era. You know, they were a national championship contender. They, you know, RG3 had won the Heisman just shortly before this. Um, you know, so we were surprised that somehow this had, you know, eluded the press that was covering Baylor. But we found, a, you know, I found a copy of the the court docket that had Ukuachi's name on it uh, online. So we drove up to Waco from, we're based in Austin. Uh, we drove up to Waco that afternoon and went to the courthouse and found, you know, looked looked it up at the at the courthouse and found the case file. And so we you know, started unpacking what was in the case file. It was a substantial one, um, it was a couple hundred pages, and uh, learned that everything we had been told was true. There was, in fact, a, a criminal case for sexual assault against Samu Kuachu that hadn't made the news. Uh, so we started reporting. We moved very quickly because the trial was just about to begin. Uh, so we had about 15 days from the time we got the tip till the time the story ran. It ran on the last day of the trial, the morning of it, shortly before he was found guilty. Uh, so, yeah, we just really kind of dove into that and learned a lot. Uh, and, you know, when you have a, a story like that, um, you learn more than you can report initially, especially when you're trying to move quickly. So, you know, we always kind of had this idea that we would keep unpacking this because, you know, the thing that made it so shocking to us was that Ukuachu was, be, became uh, that Friday, he became the second Baylor football player in, you know, a very short window to be convicted of sexual assault. Um, Tevin Elliott, who yeah. was convicted a year earlier was the first uh, and it's unusual that that would happen. Um, so we started looking like, well, what, what else don't we know? What else is going on here? And, you know, as we started talking to people around that, we, we heard some rumors. So we started investigating those rumors and that ended up taking a couple of years uh, to really unpack that. You know, we were 
reporting this story, we were, uh, you know, kind of getting uh, beat to the punch on some of the things that we had learned by uh, ESPN, who had uh, Paula Levine at ESPN as a very dogged, very diligent, very fast reporter who, uh, you know, kind of ate our lunch on, on some of those stories. So uh, we took the big picture approach of let's let's tell this whole story, learn everything we can and, and kind of tell the story. Um, over the course of years. And so we published a follow-up that uh, there were some management changes at Texas Monthly at the time. So the, the follow-up ended up running at, at Deadspin, uh, I think in 2018, mm-hmm. 2017 or 2018. But uh, we spent a couple of years really learning a lot of things. And we tried to put as many of the things that we learned as we as we could in that piece. Yeah. So I, I, I want to talk about uh, reporting practice here in a little bit. But one, one of the biggest things that uh, as, as somebody, I was a student on campus when all of this started unfolding. I was working at the student paper. Um, I continued working with a couple of other outlets on this story. And now I edit, you know, an independent alumni newsroom. And so I've been inside the cookie jar the whole time of this. And I was having a conversation earlier today with somebody about what it must be like to come in to Baylor. And there are, you know, there are all these, you know, mores and social norms and things like that, that uh, those of us inside take for granted as somebody from outside of the cookie jar. What was it like to kind of descend into this world and begin to understand it? A big part of this story is that it is Baylor. It's a Christian university with that espouses, you know, certain faith values, and you're descending into this world um, from outside of of the bubble. What's that like? That's a great question. You know, it is really different from the world I come from. I didn't go to college, so I didn't have like a, you know, a specific uh, experience in mind. But you know, I, I don't. I'm not in a faith community, so I I didn't, you know, really get until I was there, what it was like, you know, one of the first experiences I had on campus was shortly, shortly after, uh, after the Ukuwachu trial, there was a a vigil held at the uh, Truett Seminary um, for sexual assault survivors. And, and Jessica and I came up and and went to that. Um, It was really powerful. It was really moving. Um, And, you know, realizing that, you know, all of these, all, everyone involved, uh, especially, you know, so many of the, the victims and the survivors were very devout in their faith. It certainly made it harder for them to feel comfortable uh, talking about what happened. And that was something, you know, when we would interview uh, survivors, you know, we would often hear that when they, when they started talking with university officials about this, um, they would get really nervous because they would hear that, you uh, in order to proceed with their case, they would have to tell their parents that they had been drinking. I've covered this at other universities, at AM, at, at UT. Um, and the specific concern that uh, you know, victims would be worried that university officials would tell their parents they had been drinking, uh, that that was that's that's fairly unique to Baylor in my experience. Um that that's kind of that's one of the things that that really struck me. Like, oh, this is this is different from other schools. Um, student body is just, is just different, um, in that regard. So yeah, that was one of the things, you know, it is, you know, and, but, but also the, you know, I found the, the, uh, the, the faith of the survivors really moving. And, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of them used that as a, as a source of strength and, uh, and resolve. And it, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, that was something that I hadn't really given much thought to when I started reporting on this. 
Um, but as it's gone on, you know, realizing that, you know, so many of the of the survivors who, uh, you know, who who decided to take action did so because they were guided by their faith, because that that told them that it was worth doing. Um, that's something I, I've thought about a lot. So, it, you know, Baylor culture is different. You know, like the fact that you know dancing was banned on campus until uh, not that many years ago, you know, is something I, I think about a lot. Um, but you know, it's it, it it's a double edged sword. You know, I think that it that some aspects of it have been harmful to survivors, and some aspects of it, some of the things that at least drew them to Baylor, have been a real source of strength and and uh, and encouragement and support for them in that time. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to those of us inside of the bubble uh, who do this kind of reporting, but also um, w- want to be able to be, I guess the term would be introspective, you know, introspective of ourselves and our community. What advice would you give to those of us who want to seek the truth regardless of, of bias? How can we be intentional about examining ourselves? You know, I think that's a really that that's not a uh, that's not just an issue that you know people at Baylor face. That's a that's a that is one of the challenges of reporting. We, yeah, you know, we have our own individual values, our own individual you know investment in our communities. Um, that's true of everyone everywhere, and all we can really do is try and you know be guided by our our, our mission to tell the truth as best we're able to. You know, I, you know. Before I reported on Baylor, I didn't know a whole lot about the place. Um, you know, I liked RG3. Um, I liked Bryles well, you know, like I, I thought that his, I thought they had, that he had a neat story. Um, I was a big fan of RG3, you know, I, 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 um, you know, so I didn't really have any investment in it besides kind of a general, like, well, it, you know, these seem like cool, you know, like, a, like it's, it's a cool story. You know, I, sure. I don't, I'm passionate about college football in any direction. So, uh, you know, it was pretty easy to, to just be like, well, you know, they're kind of an underdog school. They're from Texas and they've got a, you know, a really exciting quarterback. Um, so that was, you know, kind of as much as I, as much investment as I had, but there are other stories where I have a, a lot of investment, you know, I've reported uh, on similar stories about similar topics in institutions that I, that are meaningful to me. You know, there's a movie theater chain that I reported on that I I was a frequent patron of um, that, you know, I I ended up reporting on a, on a history of, of, uh, you know, kind of sexual harassment within the company. And, uh, you know, again, you just kind of have to be guided by, well, as much as I value this thing personally, the the bigger value I have is to trying to tell the truth and trying to, you know, expose uh, things that, that deserve to be exposed, but, but are, are easier. It's easier to kind of turn a blind eye to them. Yeah. Um, on, on this topic of, of reporting and being a reporter, uh, I, I I don't want to get into the speci- any one specific of how you came about any one story, but if if you were to kind of like generally describe, other than receiving a direct tip, hey, this thing is going on, um, how do you approach finding the next story? So you you you've kind of wrapped up, you know, this. How are you finding your your next story? You know, some some stories land in our lap, like um like your uh your your Pee Wee Herman story. You know, I mean that that one you know happens because uh, of of a passing of a, a seminal figure uh, in in America, but, but then there are other instances uh, more more like this Baylor case where you know they they just kind of show themselves. How do you go about finding those and pursuing those? 
So one thing that uh, a piece of advice that I got pretty early on in my career that has stuck with me and proven to be incredibly accurate is that the work that you do leads to the work that you will do. Mm. So, you know, um, I had never covered a like a, a sexual assault case, uh, like investigated a, a sexual assault scandal before Baylor. Um, and then Jessica and I did that story. And after we did that story, we started getting tips about not just other things that happened at Baylor, although we certainly received a, a number of those, but also things that happened at other schools. You know, that's that's how we ended up reporting on uh, on, you know, things that were happening at the at the English department at UT or things that were happening um, at Texas A&M or or elsewhere. Um, you know, people kind of see your name and they, you know, or maybe someone uh someone talks to someone who was in another story and they reach out and say, Hey, this, you know, I had a good experience with this reporter and and you should try them. And, uh, you know, so ended up reporting a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, of, we ended up calling them me too stories, although Baylor kind of preceded me too, uh, uh, in, but you know, reported a lot of those over, you know, between, 2015 and 2019 or so um that was a, a big part of of my beat um and it's it's an exhausting one so i, I kind of stepped back from it and i'm uh for a while but uh but yeah I, I reported a lot of them many of them you know several of them uh again with jessica but also by myself um you know and and those are are yeah, those are difficult stories. They don't always, they don't always even make it to print. You know, they're, I've reported almost as many that an editor killed or, or, you know, and, and they get killed for different reasons. You know, yeah. I think after, after Harvey Weinstein, there was kind of an idea about how sensational a story needed to be in order to be newsworthy, uh, which is something I think about a lot. Like, I, I don't know that if um, the Ukawachi trial had happened after me too rather than before if it would have been received in the same way or if it would have you know it, it might have been a, a more of a regional or local story than a national story at the time yeah uh, so it's something that I, I think about you know there's people's kind of perspective on this stuff shifts over time yeah it, reporting on heavy subjects like this um can can take a toll on a person. Like you said, you, you know, you had to step back from him from a little bit, you know, and then there are the stories like uh, how long does Ted Cruz's beard really need to get, you know, you know, what Pee Wee Herman was like to non-Texans, you know, those are, those are much more fun, but what would your advice be to somebody, maybe a student journalist, maybe a young journalist, maybe somebody who has been doing much lighter pieces, but is now kind of faced with a story that is, important and you know uh uh potentially you know earth shattering what's your advice to that reporter on how to pursue that story and protect themselves at the same time yeah i think that a lot of the skills almost all of the skills that you use when you're doing you know lighter weight stories um you know they those are still the same skills that you'll use you'll still need to be able to interview people you know you'll still need to be able to uh you know kind of sift through competing versions of narratives you'll still need to be able to uh you know if you haven't filed a, a freedom of information act request before um you'll you'll need to learn how to do that but that's pretty easy you know it's not like it's just a form yeah. um, you know so you kind of you you a lot of the skills translate um and then beyond that you know you and you want to report your entertainment stories or your you know 
your your sports stories that are more about what happened on the field or or what a player is up to. You want to report those stories with integrity and with you know honesty and with a critical eye as well. Yeah. Um, you just want to take all of those skills and and apply them in the same way. You know, you'll have to. The biggest difference, I think, is that um, in reporting a story like this, in reporting a a story about someone who was assaulted or or harassed or um you know the victim of of interpersonal violence um in reporting those stories you'll be talking with people who don't have experience with reporters maybe at all maybe you're the first reporter they've ever talked to and so there's a responsibility in that situation these aren't public figures um there is a responsibility on your part to make sure that they really understand what they're getting themselves into um, you know, when I have these, when I, when I have a story like this and I, I approach a survivor, you know, I always make sure that our first conversation is completely off the record just so that they can, they can learn what they don't know. And, you know, and I, I also try and really spell out, this is what on the record means. This is what off the record means. You know, this is once you tell me your story, it belongs to me to use and, yeah. You can decide how you feel about that before you agree to tell me your story, but that's, that'll be a, you know, that that's a transfer of trust. And so I try and be really explicit about all of that because, uh, you know, people don't know how this job works and and the rules feel kind of arcane. Uh, if you're not like, you know, I've had people say, well, I don't want to participate in the story anymore. And I've had to say, unfortunately, that's not how it works. I'm so sorry. And, you know, sometimes maybe the story isn't, so important that it's worth putting them through that. And sometimes the story is bigger than them and and involves other people. And we kind of have to negotiate that. Um, So I really try and make sure that at this point, everyone knows exactly what they're getting into beforehand. Um, You know, it's a little different if you're talking to a, a, you know, talking to a university official, they've got media training. They, you know, have a communications department. They have other resources. You don't have to be that resource for them. But when you're talking about individual survivors, you know, it's really, it's it's a specific responsibility to make sure that you're educating them on how this process goes because they're very vulnerable. Yeah. Dan, how did you get involved in journalism and reporting? Uh, I kind of backed into it um a little bit a little bit later on i was in my late 20s i had been doing different kinds of writing i'd uh written fiction i'd uh i was a performance poet for a, a time um you know and and did that stuff and uh you know i wanted to to build a career that would be sustainable uh, for myself as a as a writer and so i i started with arts and entertainment reporting i started with you know really uh, you know, the kind of stories where if you make mistakes, which I did frequently, um, the, the stakes are pretty low. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of tried to just keep leveling up my my skills and my uh, opportunities over the next several years. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how I got into it was through doing arts and entertainment reporting. And I still do that stuff. I still like that stuff. I still think it's important. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I tr- I don't think it's necessary or advisable to take yourself terribly seriously as a reporter. You want to take your subject seriously. You want to take your stories seriously. But, you know, the idea that like, oh, well, if you're going to report about, you know, these these really dire topics and these really hard topics that you need to close off the part of yourself that enjoys writing, I, I don't subscribe to that theory at all. I think that, you know, these the the point of this work is to connect to people it's to get information out there it's to uh you know to communicate things it's to expose secrets and all of that but the way you accomplish that is by connection is by building connections so i try and 
report and, and write in a way that fosters connection between me and, and whoever is reading. Yeah. Dan, one more question. Uh, if, if you could, if you could put up a billboard that every person in the world would see, uh, what would you want it to say? That's a fantastic question. Um, that's really tough. Uh, I'm a big Olive Garden fan. I'll say Hospitaliano. I love it. <laughs> uh, I was hoping you would say the work that you do leads to the work that you will do, but I love Hospitaliano. Let's go with Hospitaliano. That's a, that's yeah. a better answer, but I'm gonna, I've got to be true to myself. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, Dan Solomon is a writer for Texas Monthly. He joins us from his office in Austin, Texas. Dan, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you.